0: No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code, program. Imagine
1: you're a racing driver moments before your first ever Grand Prix for a brand new team which, like you, has never competed in Formula One before.
2: This then was how they'll line up. Sebastian Vettel, pole for Red Bull. And in the pit lane will be the two Hispania racing cars, Bruno Senna and Karun Chandok.
1: You only found out you'd be racing 10 days ago. You've barely driven your car because it was still being put together and fixed during the practice sessions. You did four laps in qualifying. That's it.
2: After the predictions and the promises, at
1: last, the performance. Performance? Your hopes aren't high. You'll be sharing a track with your childhood hero Michael Schumacher and three other world champions, Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button and Lewis Hamilton. But your car is 10 seconds a lap slower than those at the front. Your target is just to make the chequered flag.
2: And we're away now in 2010.
1: Those were the extraordinary circumstances in which Karen Chandock made his Formula One debut.
3: In those early races, we weren't really racing, we were just surviving. It was still an opportunity to race in F1, which was, you know, a dream come true. I'm one out of 1.2 billion people from my country who could say they were a Formula One driver. And actually, that's a big box to take in any driver's career.
1: Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. When Karen Chandok was growing up in India, he followed F1 watching races months after they'd happened on videotapes sent by post from England. His love for the sport grew and it's still as strong as ever. It sustained him through some tough times. After dominating championships in Asia, wins in GP2 and even a test for Red Bull, he made his F1 debut for the Hispania team in 2010. He became only the second Indian driver to start a Grand Prix, following in the wheel tracks of Narain Kartikeyan. Hispania were new and their first season was hard. They struggle for speed and money. Karun believed 2011 would be better. He had a contract with Lotus, a chance to race in front of a home crowd. It didn't turn out that way. For better or worse, Karun has seen every side of the sport. The things teams do when they're fighting for survival. The political games that go on behind the scenes. The deals that can make or break drivers' careers. Today, he's a TV broadcaster with Sky. He's also a racetrack design consultant. He worked on the changes to Abu Dhabi's Yas Marina circuit ahead of the 2021 title showdown. And he's involved in grassroots motorsport, increasing opportunities for young racers. But above all, Karun is one of us, a true F1 fanatic, and he's a joy to listen to. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Karun, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for your time. Can we start by getting your thoughts on F1 in 2022? What stood
3: out for you? You can't help but be impressed with what Red Bull have done this year. You know, they were in the thick end of the World Championship battle last year. It would have been easy for them to take their eye off the huge regulation changes coming for this season. But they did a tremendous job. You know, the cars being competitive, they had a few reliability issues early on. Max seems to be driving at a whole other level, more mature, more calm than he was last year. And, uh, you know, they deserve all the success that they're getting at the
1: moment. It's funny, isn't it, Karun, how we're talking about Red Bull now. And of course, it was with Red Bull that you had your first ever test in Formula One back in 2007. What are your memories of that test?
3: I remember doing a, a straight line test, I think maybe two days at Santa Pod initially, and then went to Barcelona for the test. And uh, if you remember, that was the time where Michael Schumacher had stopped racing for Ferrari the year before, but he was still sort of a consultant advisor or something. And he was coming back to do that same Barcelona test. And uh, it was the first ever test Red Bull were doing with the McLaren ECU. So I was driving the car with the McLaren ECU, traction control was, all of that was going away, and David Coulthard was in the car with the standard uh, electronics, and, um, you know, Michael was my childhood hero, one of my childhood heroes. My overriding memory was pulling out of the pit garage for the first time and following Michael out of the pit lane, and it was a pretty surreal moment, you know, my dad was there and one of my cousins who came to a lot of my races in F2 and F3, and we were all just slightly awestruck by that, so... Uh, It was just a great experience and, you know, always thankful to Christian and Helmut for giving me that opportunity. And you
1: were in your first season of GP2 at the time. How much of a step up was it
3: for you? In terms of driving the car, actually not a lot. Um, You know, the GP2 cars and similarly, I guess, with F2 now, you know, the power, the downforce, all of that is is not a million miles off where the step up comes is just the size of the team you know you'd go to a debrief in gp2 and you talk to your race engineer and there may be a data engineer there but suddenly in f1 you're talking to this army of people in the truck and it was quite daunting because i remember coming back from my first five lap run and actually uh, tim mallion who now works for the fia was the race engineer on the test team at the time you know, the engineers, they go into this debrief, asking you a whole lot of questions. And I was like, guys, I've literally just done my first five laps in an F1 car. Here. I could give you a bit of feedback, but this is, you know, I'm learning with every lap. And I think um, they, they appreciate it, of course. And, you know, that that was a big difference is just the scale of the teams.
1: And what about your pace? I, I remember you were, what is it, 0.7 off third?
3: It was a funny one because we had a lot of issues with the, with the um, new ECU at the time. I think I only did... 26 laps on the first day and then the second day we got a bit more running but um, yeah it it was it was reasonable I think.
1: So what did this do to your Formula One hopes? I mean did suddenly India wake up to the fact that it had another Formula One driver on its hand? Was there an opportunity to stay with Red Bull in 2008?
3: It was certainly a, a big thing in India you know we were allowed to film the test and you know it was on all the main news channels and we had plenty of press coverage for it And it was at a time, actually, where Vijay had just taken over Force India as well, and they were testing that day. So there was, you know, a lot of momentum building around the the India story in F1, shall we say. Um, So it certainly was helpful. I carried on being a Red Bull junior driver for 2008. Um, You know, there's a bunch of simulator stuff because they were developing their first sim, actually, at that time. And I kept getting really ill in it, which was a bit embarrassing. I went very, I remember going to Christian's office one day, really sheepishly, saying, Really sorry, Christian, but I keep getting ill in the simulator, thinking this is going to be really bad news. And he started laughing and uh, basically said that. DC had been ill in it, Weber had been ill in it, and even Adrian got in and didn't feel very well, so uh, I wasn't the only one. I carried on with them doing um, GP2 for another year in 2008.
1: Now, you mentioned Vijay Malia a moment ago, um, Indian businessman who, as you say, brought Force India into the sport in 2008. So a very simple question from me now, why didn't you make your Formula 1 debut with Force India? It made so much sense.
3: It made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Um for whatever reason we never got around to even doing a test which is a bit disappointing if i'm honest you know i would have liked to you know both Naren and i went and did a whole bunch of simulator evaluations and we did these uh, you know, days down in the McLaren simulator. Uh, well, I should say nights, actually, because we had to go in after the McLaren guys had finished. So there were long nights spent down there. And I, I found it really interesting, I, you know, it was to actually spend time in the McLaren sim, which they were renting at the time. But it never led to anything. You know, on the whole, it was, it was just a bit disappointing, I think, in the end, not to even have had a a chance to test and, and prove a ability or lack of. And Vijay was even one of your sponsors
1: in your first season in Europe so the link had been there for many years.
3: Well he and my dad raced against each other in the early 80s. He was in an Ensign F1 car, my dad in an ex Elio De Angelis Chevron F2 car and they were racing all over India. It's a really funny one. Uh, It's a question I get asked quite often because socially today we're still friends and uh, you know we still see each other uh, on occasion, and uh, we got on socially fine, but we just never ended up doing anything together in the race team.
1: Well, Casey, what about Spa 2009 after Heller had got that second place? He then went to Ferrari, and I remember your name being linked to Force India to finish the rest of the season. How close did that get?
3: It got closer in the than it did in reality (laughs) if I'm (laughs) honest Um, and and even at the end of 2009 is a really interesting time because obviously we had all these new teams coming into F1 and uh, it was a fascinating winter but the conversation around Force India as a race seat certainly never happened. I I vaguely recall some conversations around a third driver role I think for 2011 but um, yeah not at that time.
1: And you'd done three seasons in GP2 at this point. You'd won races. Did you feel that for 2010 it was F1 or you were going to have to park that dream and go and do something else?
3: Exactly, yeah. I think it was a question of either F1 or go off to America or sports cars or something. And especially with those new teams coming in, you know, the, the timing was... It was ripe in that sense because all of a sudden there were a bunch of new seats. There were meant to be eight new seats on the grid, it ended up being six new seats, but... Um, Well, that was
1: going to be Formula One's sort of first budget cap, wasn't it? Max Mosley had come up with $40 million. And and as you say, three teams actually made the grid, Team Lotus, Virgin and Hispania. You end up going to Hispania. How did you end up there?
3: Well, most people don't know this, but I was one of the few drivers who went to America first to speak with Peter Windsor and Ken Anderson Uh, about about USF1. So I went and spent three days with them out there because, you know, Peter's been a mate for many years, um, as he is of yours, and you know I I wanted to go out there and see what they had. But I came away from the that trip thinking I just don't don't think they're going to make it. I did what, ha- what
1: did they have?
3: They, they had a factory, and they had you know some machinery, and um, they had you know I went to the wind shear wind tunnel with them, which is what they were going to use, which was actually an incredible experience because there was IndyCar teams there, NASCAR teams there. It's an amazing facility which people like Renault used to use in the Alonso years, I think. I'd met people who'd left teams like BAR to move across the pond and set up there. But, you know, this was in, I think, October or November when I went across. And it just didn't have the feel of a team that was going to be ready with a car by the time we got to February. I had conversations. I went to Norfolk, spent some time with Mike Gascoigne and talked to them at Lotus. Uh, I spent a bit of time with Graham Loudon and John Booth talking about the seat at Virgin at the time, and they all sort of went to dead ends at that stage. So then I got a phone call from Bernie actually saying that, do you remember this team? Stefan GP was sort of sniffing around, Zoran Stefanovic and his son, and they were trying to do a deal with Toyota to take over the cars from Toyota. So we got a phone call saying, these guys are talking about an entry, we're not sure if Max and the FIA will do it, but go across and meet with them. So my dad and I literally ran to the airport, bought a flight ticket from India to Cologne, drove there, and I got to know John Howard at Toyota uh, a little bit before. So I spoke with John, he said, "Yep, no, these people, you know, they've look like they've got the money. So again, another team I met who didn't make it to the grid. Casey, how good could that have been? Because I, everyone I've spoken to from
1: that period say that the 2010 Toyota would have been gold, would have been potential race winner.
3: Well, I was interested to hear Timo Glock on, on this podcast talking about that because actually when I got there and when I spoke with John and some of the people who were there, that was their sentiment. This was the car that they'd finally turned the corner on and it was there, you know, and it's extraordinary walking around this factory like a ghost town. They had 200 engines all wrapped up in plastic, and like the gearbox dyno was still on, but there were no people there. <laughs> it was a bit bizarre. Uh, anyway, that didn't happen. And then I was talking to Adrian Campos, because, of course, his, what became his pannier was originally going to be Campos Meta F1. And I was speaking with Adrian. It was quite clear. He ran out of money. And finally, we got to sort of February... And Colin Collis got in touch and, uh, you know, we we managed to get this deal over the line. And I went across to uh, Murcia in Spain for the launch and uh, then went to Dallara to do the seat fit
1: What kind of frame of mind were you in? Because the deal was only done like the week before the first race in Bahrain. Did you feel ready mentally? Did you feel ready physically?
3: Well, physically I felt ready because I I knew this was the one real opportunity with these new teams coming in so i i made sure i was physically prepared for it mentally of course it was all a bit daunting because there's so much going on there's so much noise going on around all of these conversations with these five teams it was a little bit tricky but actually when i went to delara to do the seat fit that was the first time it felt real i spent time with mr delara Gianpaolo delara um i have a great relationship with him and, you know, then I actually spent time with the designers and having a look at the wind tunnel and things like that. And they said to me, they said, look, the car we've got here really should have just done the launch at the hotel. and But now we're kind of stuck with it. We don't have time to go testing. We'll end up doing the first four flyaways. But the update package they had for Barcelona was like 60 points of downforce. You know, it, it would have taken that car to the head of the new teams probably on, not far off at of Toro Rosso, which, funnily enough, if you look at where Haas and Dallara arrived in F1, I think it was 2016, that's sort of where they ended up, actually.
1: And this is the Haas model, isn't it? The Haas model of today is what Hispania were doing back then?
3: Yeah, to, to a lesser degree, because obviously Haas arrived with the Ferrari collaboration as well, whereas at that time, Max's mandate was everyone had to use the same Cosworth engine with the new teams. But um, it was certainly about, you know... Dallara are a great company. If you look at what they do with IndyCar and GP2 and Formula 1 his Formula 3 and stuff, they they know how to build good cars. So, yeah, it's such a shame that the Hispania team, Colin and the Carabantes, collectively sort of fell out with Dallara and that update never arrived. So, that launch car which was meant to go to a hotel basically ended up racing in that spec for the season well, and
1: almost didn't race
3: because oh you, yeah. missed,
1: you missed the whole of practice in bahrain i think your first laps were qualifying
3: yeah yeah i changed in and out of my race suit about seven times because they kept saying the car will be ready and then it wasn't and we we finally got going and qualifying um i mean the first weekend was just a scramble
2: With- Chandok out on the road now. This is very much a voyage of reconnaissance, really, for the Hispania racing team. Uh,
3: oh Damage Ch- front wing on Chandok's guy's been off, obviously.
2: Chandok has lasted barely two laps.
3: In some ways, as much of a mess as it was, in other ways, it kind of took the pressure off because we just needed to get out there and do some laps. and. When you're doing your first Grand Prix weekend, there's so much other stuff and noise outside of the car going on. This just got swept up with the whirlwind. But I think, again, just to finish up on that first weekend, my standout memory is actually from the Thursday where I walked in the paddock, and it's my first time walking into the paddock at a Grand Prix weekend as a race driver. And the first driver I spoke with was Michael Schumacher, this was Michael making his return to F1. He was the biggest star that time, you'd have to say. He was bigger than Luis, Fernando, all of these guys at that time. And I was a nobody, right? But he he actually walked up to me and s- introduced himself to me as if he had to and said, you know, welcome to F1. And we had a conversation. He said, where are you from? And asked a bit about my background. We, you know, had a really polite conversation. He didn't need to do that. And till today, and I, I told Mick this story last year as well when he came to F1. I said... I really appreciated that as a young kid coming into F1 with a guy who was on my bedroom wall. That, that meant a lot and still means a lot even today. Did you say
1: anything along the lines of, yeah, I think I was quicker than you at Barcelona back in 2007 in the test?
3: <laughs> I, uh, I just stood there and smiled a lot, I think.
1: <laughs> and how bizarre in a way that you go to the second race of 2010 and actually get your best result of the season with the team.
2: Karen Chanduk finishes his first Grand Prix. He'd only managed nine laps in one stint. And here he's managed to get round 53, finished five laps down on the winner, Jensen Button. So that's a real shot in the arm for Hispania Racing.
3: In Melbourne, it was a weird race because we had all these changeable conditions and stuff. But when I look back at that time, my my best race was probably in Valencia that year, Um, I think, where... In those early races, we weren't really racing. We were just surviving, you know. The, we were very lucky. We had a, a guy called Andre Bird, who, who sadly passed away recently. But Andre came from Williams, and he was a hydraulics specialist. And, you know, it's very rare these days in these big race teams that you can literally peg your finishing record on one individual. But, um, you know, he, he was one of those people who was just helping us get over the line. So to be honest, till we got through those first three or four flyaways, we were just surviving as a team, just getting going. But, you know, for me, it was it was still an opportunity to race in F1, which was, you know, a dream come true.
1: At what point did you start to lose
3: faith? I think when we got to Barcelona um, and you realize the update wasn't coming and we were kind of stuck there. It became We had some pretty heated meetings in Shanghai, I remember, Bruno Senna. Because Bruno was my teammate, but he was also one of my closest friends at the sport. And I remember we went to a meeting, Bruno, his sister Bianca, who was managing him, my dad and I, we went and had this meeting with the Carabantes at a hotel in, in Shanghai. And it was quite a punchy meeting, but it, we came away pretty disillusioned in terms of the progress that car and that team was going to make. So, well, And so, their commitment? Yeah, it was pretty clear financially. They had some, perhaps underestimated the cost of it. I think they'd come in under the illusion of the 40 million cap, which obviously didn't go through, uh, and they just somewhat underestimated what it was going to take to move up the grid. So yeah, that was it was difficult. I mean, we had a comical moment. I remember because then they get to the stage where they're trying to get money through the door, and where there's <laughs> quite comical moment in uh, Barcelona. I remember walking into the pit garage for FP1. And as I walked in one door, Christian Klein walked in the other door and he was in a race suit and he looked at me and went, what are you doing? And I went, well, what are you doing? <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm driving the car in FP1 and nobody told me. And then I looked at the car and it had my name stick on one side and his name on the other. So we still don't know who was driving. <laughs> and um, ev- anyway, eventually it transpired that they'd done a deal with Christian to do a bunch of FP1s, but nobody bothered telling me. And then I remember opening the, the toolbox to get a, a screwdriver to change my visor or something. There was a whole list of name stickers. They had Pastor Maldonado, Jacques Villeneuve, Giorgio Mondini. can't remember. There was two or three. There was like a sticker list of driver names in the top drawer of the toolbox. So looking back, it was all quite comical. But, you know, at the time, it's pretty stressful when you find out someone else is driving your car for fp one
1: Madness. Now you mentioned Bruno Senna's name. As you say, you you knew him and you know him very well. You were teammates in GP two, teammates in Formula One. What kind of a driver was and is Bruno and how did he deal with the pressure that came with the surname?
3: Bruno and I got on really well because we we had a we discovered in GP two that we had a very similar driving style. And and actually neither of us have an ego, you know, so we got on really well in terms of teammates and um sharing information and wanted similar things from the car and actually we had a similar background in terms of neither of us actually did any karting you know he he did a bit of karting at Ayton's farm but then the family didn't let him do any racing till he was older and similar for me growing up in india i never did a go-kart race in my life so we both missed that whole phase of you know 8 to 10 years of your career where the hamiltons and verstappes and all these people are but how does up, that
1: affect you?
3: Well, I was going to say, it builds up the muscle memory. It builds up, you know, it gets your nerves just at that young age where it's so important to build that muscle memory. We missed all of that. So in many ways, Bruno and I had parallels. It's quite funny because I was always very open about the fact that I was an Alan Prost fan growing up. And I, I, would often, you know, Bruno and I would talk about it as well. Uh, and I, go, I became very good friends with his mom, Viviane, and um, and Bianca, and everyone. So we got on really well. I think the pressure for him was is obviously huge, right? Carrying the surname is, is was a lot to a lot of baggage to carry. And I think much like we're with Mick these days, you know, they've got the baggage of the surname, but without the benefit of having that individual in the paddock as a mentor, you know, that's tough for those guys. But I, I always saw and treated Bruno as Bruno, as my mate, rather than Ayton's nephew uh, as someone with a centre name. And I think that's why we, we got on.
1: It all comes to an end after 10 races. You're replaced by Sakon Yamamoto. Yep. Can I guess the reasons why?
3: Well, the, <laughs> the Silverstone weekend is quite something as well. Because when I, I got to the track on Thursday... My race engineer Richard Connell said to me, "Really sorry, mate, but I think Sakon's driving this weekend in your car." And I was like, "Well, again, nobody's told me." So I, I said, "Look, I'm going to go on a track walk with my dad and just sort of clear my head and see what happens." And I, I, we was was the last year of using the old pits at Cops, and I got to the Hangar Straight and my phone rang and Richard said, uh, "You're in for the weekend, but I think SACCON's doing FP1." And I thought, "Okay, that's that's okay. I can deal with that." And we carried on walking and I came out of the club and the phone rang again and he said, oh, you're in all weekend, but I think Sackhorn's doing FP1 in Bruno's car. Fine, even better. <laughs> and then, by the time I got to the the complex, um, you know, near near Luffield, he called and said, ah, uh, it's all kicking off at the motorhome. <laughs> Bruno's out for the weekend. There's a lot of shouting going on. Uh, it's going to be you and Sacon. So uh, it, it's a long story that unfolded over that track walk. But, you know, the, the team basically said at that stage they needed to get finances into the bank and, and Sacon had the funding. So essentially I, the British Grand Prix is going to be my last one with them.
1: But Casey, you'd been around racing long enough to know that that is not a way to run a racing team. Why couldn't they see that?
3: I think they just didn't realize the financial commitment they needed. And they, from their standpoint, they had to do what they had to do to survive, I guess, was their logic. So yeah, unfortunately I, I, uh, that was the end of the road for me with them.
1: And you started doing some commentary work in the second half of 2010.
3: How odd was that, sort of commentating on the season that you thought you should have been driving? To be honest, I was getting bored of the track, so I sort of volunteered to join Crofty in the comms box. But what people in the UK and and Europe perhaps didn't appreciate is that I first commentated on a Grand Prix when I was 20 years old. I did the 2004 Chinese Grand Prix for Star Sports in Asia, and I'd spent many years commentating for Star Sports in between my Formula 3 and GP2 racing just to earn a bit of money. You know, I had no financial backing. You know, we had just about enough to go racing. Everything we had was poured into the racing and buying an extra set of tires. So any money I could earn was handy. I did F1 in cinemas with Ben Edwards across the UK and uh, all sorts of commentary things. So commentating wasn't new for me. And to be honest, it was a conscious thing to do because it was a fallback career, right? You know, every winter for me in F3 and GP2 and stuff was was stressful because you didn't know where the money would be to carry on. And the career, the driving career could have ended at any time. As you know, I'm a huge Formula One fan and I wanted to find ways to make sure I'm still involved with the sport.
1: And that muscle memory you talk about in karting, does that early experience of commentating, did that help you? I mean, if you'd come to it 10 years later, do you think you wouldn't have been quite so seamless in the transition?
3: I think at the end of the day, for me, the... The fact that I am such a huge F1 fan and and I've watched so much of it and built a knowledge bank in my brain since the age I was three is what I fall back on as a commentator. Um, I think the art of being able to communicate things, certainly having that early experience where you're commentating to Asia and Asian audiences which aren't as mature as an audience for F1 as perhaps the European ones means you have to explain things and break things down in a simplistic way. And I think I got used to doing that, which perhaps has helped me uh, even today.
1: Look, we're going to come back to this because the racing career isn't over. The Formula One career isn't over at this point. 2011, you switched to Team Lotus. What other options did you have at the time?
3: I think that's where there was a possibility to do some FP1s and be a reserve driver with Force India, actually. Now, as we're talking about this podcast, I think that's where there was an opportunity. But... 2011 was the first year of the Indian Grand Prix and my deal with Lotus and the deal I negotiated with Tony Fernandez was to do, I can't remember off the top of my head, but X amount of FP1 sessions, some days of pre-season testing and then a certain amount of races, including the Indian Grand Prix. To be honest, that deal, and, and that year was my least enjoyable year in 20 years of being involved in the sport. I did this deal with Tony and I went into it with all the right intentions of you know it was going to be a dream come true to race in the indian grand prix as an indian driver and for me it was a team further up the grid uh, better funded better structured and what i didn't realize is essentially tony hadn't really discussed it with anybody else so i rocked up at the first test in valencia in my lotus team kit and mike Gascoigne and the engineers sort of looked at me and what are you doing here and you know that is not the way to integrate yourself into a team. I felt like an outsider straight away. Those test days that I was meant to do at Heret in Barcelona, I think, got taken away from me. So I didn't drive the car. Then I was put in the car for FP1 in Melbourne, and I was feeling all this pressure of wanting to make a good impression and try and win all these engineers on side. That I I just made a mistake. I ended up having a shunt, which was had the opposite effect, you know, it completely eroded my reputation with them, which which was such a shame, because as the season unfolded, I had a whole bunch of sessions which ended up being rained out, and actually in the dry sessions, like Monza and places like that, I was fine, but it just completely ruined my relationship with Mike, and the way that we started on the wrong foot, he didn't really understand why I was there, because he had race drivers, Tony hadn't explained the deal to them. And I was, you know, you're just sort of hanging around like the spare part at a race.
1: So how did you end up replacing Yano Trulli for the German Grand Prix?
3: Well, Yano was having some issues that year with the steering system. He wasn't getting on with the steering system in the car. And I did a whole bunch of simulator days, which were actually, the, which was actually the only enjoyable part of that time, to be honest. I had a really interesting time doing it because we were renting the Red Bull simulator. So I was doing loads of days in the sim. And I think Tony just got a bit fed up, and as we was walking to the grid at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, I was chatting with, uh, I remember my friend Jimmy Roberts, who was writing for F1 Racing at the time, and Tony just bombed up and said, you're doing the next race, I've had enough of Janos moaning, and I sort of went, that's a bit of a, <laughs> a random comment, and I th- i thought he was joking, and then, next thing I know, you know, the CEO at the time, Riyad Azma, followed up and said, no, no, Tony serious, and so I got chucked into the car for the Nürburgring race. Again, at that stage, I had not even done a single lap in the dry in the car. It wasn't one of my contracted races. You know, I was meant to do races the back end of the year in the run up to the Indian Grand Prix. So it was a bit of a, a, a messy weekend, to be honest. Yeah, it, it just wasn't enjoyable.
1: So we all get on a plane to Delhi for the first Indian Grand Prix. There's
3: huge excitement. What were you feeling at that moment? Frustration, anger, disillusion, disappointment. I would say that next four months is the only time in my life I fell out of love with motor racing. I completely fell out because I knew I was going to that race weekend. The contract I had wasn't being honoured. There was going to be a long-drawn battle, contractual court battle, potentially. At the end of the day, most importantly, my dream of racing my home Grand Prix was being taken away from me.
1: Surely you confronted Tony Fernandez about this. What did he say?
3: He just said, I can't do it. He kept saying, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I know you're really upset. I'm really sorry. And, and then when someone says that, there's no, what do you even say? There's no comeback to that. The reality was, he had done this deal with me, but hadn't clarified it with the other two race drivers. And ultimately, they had a contract to race. And he basically signed three drivers for two race seats. And uh, yeah, it was, I was the easiest plug to pull, I guess.
1: And then in 2012, you switch to sports cars and, and the, the Formula One dream fades. Just how do you reflect on it all, Karun? Do you look at Formula One as a hugely frustrating time for you? You weren't able to show the world what you could do? Or is there some positives that you take out of it?
3: I like to look at things with a silver lining. I think in if you asked me this question in 2012-13, my answer would probably be I was hugely frustrated with life and frustrated with F1 and the politics of F1 and all of that stuff. Were you naive to the politics of Formula 1? No, I no, I wasn't. But I think I was perhaps naive in terms of realizing how little financial uh, commitment there was to that Hispania team. Because actually, if I take a step back, look at the people that they were there in 2010. Jeff Willis at Mercedes since then, very successful. Tony Chikorea went on to be chief race engineer at Ferrari. Stephen Mitas was chief engineer in the Porsche LMP1 team. Richard Connor, my engineers, at Bricksworth with Mercedes winning all these world championships. You know, we had some uh, really, really clever engineers on there. Uh, and so the race team, actually, the people in the race team were brilliant, and I enjoyed learning from them and spending time working with them. I perhaps underestimated how much money there was really behind it. So looking back at it, at that time, I was hugely frustrated by an opportunity lost. I was annoyed with myself that I put myself in a position to blindly trust the contractual situation at Lotus, and I should have been more aware of what the deals were with the other drivers and the rest of the situation, and shouldn't have perhaps walked into that situation, or allowed Tony to take me into that situation with the team, because from day one, we were on the back foot. But now looking back, I look at the silver lining and go, look, I came from India, never having done a go-kart race, didn't really have a proper budget to do anything in F3, GP2. Got lucky with people like Red Bull who came to support me at the right moments. And I'm one out of 1.2 billion people from my country who could say they were a Formula One driver. And actually, that's a big box to take in any driver's career.
1: And how popular is Formula One in India now?
3: I would say it's the same as we're seeing everywhere else in the world you know the the recent rise we're seeing across the calendar frankly in the last three years India's no different despite the fact we haven't got a race there anymore I think India is a bit different right to countries like Bahrain or places like China and uh, uh, more recent venues that have joined Baku and places like that I look back to the late 90s there was a huge F1 audience there you know there used to be these bars in India that would do F1 screenings, and you'd have half the bar dressed in red for Michael Schumacher, and the other half dressed in silver for Mika Hakkinen. And you know, there was a huge F1 following in the late 90s already, um, which is why when we got to that first race in 2011, 105,000 people showed up.
1: So, why when we're Talking about calendar expansion, three races in the U.S. in 2023, a huge desire to get Formula One back to Africa. Why is India not being mentioned in the same breath?
3: Well, when Liberty took over uh, F1, that's one of the first conversations I had with Chase Carey <laughs> was about the Indian Grand Prix, and then I, you know, Stefano and I speak about it every few months. Even there's a few historical issues to do with legislation and taxes and and the and the government. And, which need to be resolved but ultimately the government never fully got behind the race like they have in most of these other countries that you talk about whether it's a state government or a or the central government that is a, a huge difference right when you compare a race like singapore for example you know it's it's got collaborative effort between the private individual and a private company as well as the government but it's still hugely supported by the government whereas in india That never really happened and uh, that's largely why the race has sort of fallen apart.
1: And is the Buddha International Circuit ready to go? What sort of state is it in now?
3: Well the circuit have just done a deal with MotoGP so MotoGP is going to be racing there. Um, They still run national racing events and track days and other bits and pieces so the circuit is still there. It's still homologated for grade one. Yeah I mean listen I'd love to have the Grand Prix back there. I, I, I spent a a lot of time and effort working with my dad and, you know, the team of people we had to put the Grand Prix on for those three years. And it was fascinating, right? For me, I had the opportunity to see the sport as a driver and as being part of a team, so from a from that perspective. But we worked with Formula One on the TV rights through 2002, 2003, 2004 to put it on terrestrial TV in India. So I got to see that side of the sport. And then we worked a lot to bring the race to India and run the operations for the race in that phase so just seeing what goes into building a racetrack you know we were there every three four weeks watching the construction and you know having inputs on all of that stuff and then negotiating the contracts with F1 and the promoter and all this sort of stuff traveling and even actually take a step even before that going back to 2006-7 traveling across India with Bernie going to all these meetings with him and with various people who said, "Oh, we want to host an F1 race; it'll be great." And just sitting in on those meetings was so interesting for me. As a, you know, I was what 22 at the time, 22, 23 at the time, and just being involved in these meetings where they're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars across a contract it was fascinating. Those were your university years, weren't they? Absolutely. You know, I I, I didn't go to university because my career was. From high school, you know, I did my equivalent of A-levels in India and went to go racing. And so I always say to people when they were, what school did you go to? I say SHK, the school of hard knocks.
1: (laughs) But it's funny, you've just listed so many experiences and your life post-racing, post-driving, should I say, seems to incorporate so much of that you know you talk about building the 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 buddha international circuit well you are actually now a consultant for driven international and you build race tracks i mean would you consider trying to build another grade one track in india somewhere else
3: i don't know uh, whether we need another track in india it's it's not that's not the limiting factor it's actually getting the government and to buy into it and put the financial backing into it but coming back to um, your, que- your point about designing tracks, it's it's great fun, to be honest. Um, you know, we're designing a whole range of circuits. We We did the redevelopment of the Abu Dhabi track last year. It's pretty cool that the championship was decided at a corner that I helped to redesign at Turn 5. Wait, think, were
1: you nervous before that race, thinking yeah. those changes are my responsibility or my, me and my team's responsibility? I hope it works.
3: Yeah, hundred percent. It got more nervous because I had people like Crofty and Simon Lazenby ripping into me all through Thursday and Friday, telling me um, how it was going to be all my fault. But it, it was a tricky one, right? Because it's sort of that was sort of like renovating a house, and you're telling the the architect you can't move the kitchen, you can't move the bathrooms, and you can't move the garage because essentially that's what we had. You know, you can't move the marina, can't move the pit complex, or the pit exit, or the grandstands. So you 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 have to kind of work around that. But you know, the, the fact that the drivers all ended Friday, being overwhelmingly positive about the changes and said they they found it a better track to drive was was a huge confidence boost for. The whole team of track designers we've got but you know we're doing tracks in we've done things in hawaii we've done things in vietnam in the middle east um what have and you done fun. in hawaii it's a private member circuit so um, yeah we're doing all these fun projects now we've got uh, one in canada uh, outside of toronto and for me it's a chance to you know i've i've driven on 88 circuits around the world and visited several others that i've been commentating at and that's being able to implement my ideas and see them come to life is is great and uh, you know during covid i we i invested in a simulator in my office and we've set up a remote working system now where and it's it's a great way of incorporating a driver's thoughts because that's often the case circuits get designed and the driver goes oh that's a bit rubbish because nobody asked the drivers whereas we've come about it in a slightly different way You know, I'm involved from, here's the plot of land. Let's get some pencils out, start sketching something. Then we go to the simulation models and and all the way through.
1: What's your favorite type of corner?
3: I think that's actually... What's the one you're pushing
1: for when you're doing a new site.
3: I think this is where people don't understand the complexities, actually, because you have to design a track that suits so many different things. And first of all, what is the plot of land you've got? You might have a really thin, long rectangle. You might have a square... You have to get a track to fit that, but you have to get a track that's got various elements. It has to be exciting for the drivers or riders. It's got to be good for overtaking and racing. It's got to have some elevation changes. It's got to be practical from a sustainability and usage and energy standpoint as a business model. It's got to incorporate conference center, car parks, fan zones, hospitality. There's so many elements that go into a a circuit project. Interesting that you say drivers and
1: riders, a track that is best suited for Formula One, can that also be a good bike track and vice versa is a good bike track, a good Formula One track?
3: I think it's not a given, but there are certain circuits like Suzuka, frankly, which are probably fantastic on either form of motorsport. So a place like Valencia, for example, isn't a particularly fun track for a car. It's a bit Mickey Mousey, but the bikers enjoy it. So... You're never going to satisfy everybody, uh, and ultimately, from my perspective, obviously, I'm looking out for things from a car perspective, but you have to go back to the people who are building the track and go, right, what's your business model? If their business model is 150 days a year, is bike track days, as it will be in a place like Thailand or Indonesia, then you've got to get someone from that perspective to help you.
1: Now, you've driven 88 circuits, you say. You've also driven 29 Formula One cars. 11 of those have been championship winners. Tell us about them. What's your favorite?
3: I'm a very lucky boy. (laughs) Um, I would say, emotionally, it's got to be the Mansell Red 5, the the 1992 championship-winning FW14B. It's a screensaver on my phone. Um, That's a great picture. So, yeah, listen, I got to drive it on several occasions, Probably the most enjoyable was on Sunday morning of the British Grand Prix in 2017. The crowd were in, and I basically had Murray Walker's voice in my head as I <laughs> went down Hanger Straight. Just, that was my my era where I fell in love with F1. Late 80s, early 90s, Mansell, Prost, Senna. And it's just such a cool car. If you think about when it was designed... I mean, I, I've driven it even recently, just three weeks ago, actually. And it's still fascinates me when you see them warming the car up the active suspension moving up and down and and for me i've been lucky to talk to people like nigel and damon pat sir patrick head paddy Lowe, you know all the people involved with that car at that time and just learn about it um adrian newey of course you know the the aero brain behind that car so that emotionally has got to be the the best one i think
1: sebastian vettel loved it too
3: yeah, I mean, loved it so much, he bought one. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, as a driving experience, certainly driving Lewis's 2019 Mercedes, it's the most perfect car. But actually, I came away from driving that thinking it was a bit too perfect, whereas the Montoya... Hang on, I need to pick you up on that. How can
1: a car be too perfect? Did My... it lack character because it did nothing wrong? In some
3: ways, yeah, because you got in it and everything just worked. Everything was just Absolutely perfect. But it didn't give you this awe-inspiring shock, which I think Formula One cars should do. You know, I, I've, as you say, I've driven a lot of F1 cars now. But when I got in that Montoya 2004 car, it scared me for the first five laps. Every time I turned the steering wheel, it scared me. Every time I did anything, it scared me. But what was me. it doing? I still believe, in many ways, it was the peak of F1 performance, 2004. You had cars that were light, they were nearly 200 kilos lighter than what we have today. You know, the cars today, I personally feel they're too big and fat. You know, the cars have just gotten so heavy, they're nearly a sports car weight. Whereas then, it was 605 kilos as opposed to 798 now. And and the BMW engineers came over from Germany, and one of the guys was there in period. Classic BMW fashion, he had every run sheet, every dyno run, and he went, this engine was 956 horsepower, the dyno. And, you know, that's not far off what they have now with something that's 200 kilos lighter. So it was just nimble and agile and light, and the traction control was working superbly. And it was just an awesome, awe-inspiring driving experience. So that is your favorite era? I'd say my favorite era is the early 90s. If you ask me, is there any era I wish I raced in, it would be early 90s F1. In
1: the FW14B, quite everybody, fancy
3: winning I don't <laughs> think anyone
1: wanted to drive the Brabham BT60 that Damon drove. Just talking to you now about those cars, it's so obvious the passion you have for it. I mean, where does it come from? India, you say there was no infrastructure to go karting. So so why, why motor racing?
3: My family were into it. My dad used to race and rally. My grandfather, my grandmother used to do some racing, which... I mean, not big funny, when you think of the context of an Indian lady in the 70s racing these cars around, that's pretty something. She was quite a rebel, I think. But yeah, I, I grew up in a motor racing family, but they didn't have the opportunity to leave India. I think they did the odd race in Sri Lanka, but never, not much more than that. And it was done in a very, almost an amateur way, in some ways. They they were racing on disused airfields, and they had what they called the open class, so you'd have F1 cars like Vijay was driving, alongside F2 cars, alongside Formula Fords, and all, and they'd all race against each other.
1: And that was the Indian Grand Prix for many years, right?
3: Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, my dad was in the Chevron, and he was one of the big stars. And they they would get crowds. I remember going to races. Where you'd get 65 70,000 people in this grandstand, watching them drive around. They're still. I've got videos, actually, which Bob Fernley... Found on an old camcorder and digitized these old videos of them racing around in Madras and they had bookies in the car park. you know it was a big thing, but it, it's so far away from what actual structured professional motor racing was in Europe. were you the outlier at school or were there other motor racing fans there? one hundred percent the outlier my my friends didn't even understand it. you know my weekends were spent traveling, my dad was also rallying, so I was traveling across the country going to rallies and you know, watching the stages all across, and it it was really funny, because my interest got to the point where it was an obsession, I would read Autosport magazine obsessively, but because of postage delays, you know, I'd read about the British Grand Prix in October or something, and I'd I'd watch recordings of the races, we had a friend of ours called Martin Stone, who got um, later on involved with Carl in motorsport, the Formula 2 team, and Martin would record races on the Beeb, and, and post it to us. So again, you know, I'd be watching Phoenix in the summer and all this way out of sync. But I didn't care. I just watched these races over and over. And, you know, I can still probably repeat Murray's commentary from the opening lap of the British Grand Prix in 87. That's where the love for the sport came. But my dad, to his credit, recognized that not only was I a, a kid who was in love with the sport, but I was actually getting knowledgeable about it. You know, he then went on to run we had the Madras Grand Prix for Formula 3 cars, and I, as in 93, for example, I was a nine-year-old, and I was making the decision on the drivers we would have on the team, because I was watching British F3 and following British F3 via Autosport, so I knew, actually, what we want to be doing is speaking to you know, Warren Hughes for 94 or stuff like that. So, aside from the Madras Grand Prix, what was the standard
1: of racing like over there? Because without karting you went straight in and dominated when you raced in India how much of a culture shock was it then coming to Europe
3: the standard of racing in in Asia in terms of the competition level is still way behind Europe and so you know I I did the first season of racing in India I I won the championship there race in Asia won the championship there pretty comfortably on both occasions but then you come to Europe and it's like wow this is a shock to the system and And also, you know, I went from living in the sunshine near the beach, pretty cushy life at home because I think, um, you know, as most Indian kids are kind of molly-cuddled at home and well-protected. And I was dropped into a town of 11,000 people in Brackley. I lived 300 meters from where the BAR team were at the time. I'd gone from 11 million to 11,000. I landed on the 1st of February. It's dark at 3 p.m. I mean, I didn't even understand what was going on. So it's a culture shock as well. Didn't know anybody. You know, my friends were the mechanics and engineers I had in the team. Um, my dad had a few friends from when he was racing. and I, But I think, and I talked to Mark Weber about it, and he's got a great phrase of, you know, you would charge through walls. And I think that's so apt for anyone who comes like him from Australasia or from Japan or from Brazil and, and, and Asia in general. When you come to Europe... I think the Europeans and the Brits perhaps underestimate how much we've sacrificed, how much of a life you've given up to come. So your motivation to get your butt out of bed and go running in the middle of winter because you're thinking, if I'm not doing it, someone else is, you know, is, is so high. And I think it, it toughens you up mentally.
1: Is the standard in India rising?
3: Yes. You no, know, certainly, you know, we now have a, a karting championship. We have multiple karting championships for all ages. We have a national racing championship. I would say certainly in the last decade, you know, there's, there's much more infrastructure domestically. Uh, and also Asia. You know, there's a, there's a Formula 4 championship here. There's a Middle East racing scene now that didn't exist back then. So, yeah, certainly things have changed a lot. Now, another thing
1: that you've got involved with, you have your finger in so many pies. That's what I've learned. But at Motorsport UK, uh, you're on the board. What's it like working with David Richards and his gang?
3: He's a very impressive individual. You know, I knew David socially for many years, but this is the first time I've seen him in a work context. And together with Hugh Chambers, the CEO, you know, they worked together at ProDrive for many years. And uh, it's it's fascinating just to... For me, again, see another side of the sport. I've, I've been a member of the FIA's Drivers' Commission since 2013, representing the rights and views of drivers, and you know I've been on the Single Seater Commission and all sorts of other projects, and now seeing it from an ASN standpoint, so you're not looking at a global level, a more national level, allows me to see a different side of the sport. And to be honest, I, I find it good for my personal growth, actually, you know, and I'm able to have a direct impact as well. We, we sat down last year and said, right... Britain's being left behind in terms of entry-level single-seater racing with Formula 4. So we, when I, I came to the UK, because that was the place you had to go to, to be a Formula 1 driver, but it was starting to get left behind. You know, British F3 is no longer what it used to be. F4 was being left behind. Formula Ford is being left behind. So last year, one of my first projects was to revive Formula 4. And uh, this year, we've hit the ground running. We had 20 cars on the grid for the last race. And I get a lot of satisfaction from that, saying, you know, that was something I personally spent a lot of hours helping the team put together. And now, you know, they're off and running now. I'm not involved day to day, but there's a lot of satisfaction from that.
1: And is England still the epicenter of the junior formulas? Or if if your son wanted to go racing, where would you plug him
3: in? Europe, yes, but which country? I'd send him to the queue for the national lottery first. (laughs)
1: We'll give him a cricket bat. <laughs> yeah, or a
3: cricket bat or a table tennis racket. Yes, I think the UK did slip behind, if I'm honest. Italy because Italy's become this such a strong epicenter for karting, a lot of kids are going naturally to Formula Four. But actually now we've done such a restructure of British F four, it's on the up and you know, we've got a lot of the F three and F two teams now involved with F four, which is great because the you know, that's how the pyramid needs to work. And uh, all signs are that for next year, there's a lot of interest, which is good. Karun,
1: it's been so wonderful to talk to you Uh, here at Suzuka. I know I'm going to lose you now because you've got to go back to Sky Duty. Live TV calls. Do you enjoy the buzz?
3: I do. You know, I think uh, Sky is the fifth different broadcaster I've worked with in F1. But there's no question about the fact that uh, over the last 10 years in the sport, they have established themselves as as a leading broadcaster, really. And we've got a great team of people and I'm just very lucky that I get to travel the world, talking about a sport that I've been in love with since I was three years old, working with friends of mine who um, enjoyed following the sport.
1: And it's amazing how seriously your analysis gets taken. Do you remember 2019 Canada, the uh, Hamilton Vettel incident, Ferrari submitted... Your analysis as, evi- as evidence.
3: I was quite flattered, actually. I sent Laura Mackey's a text saying I'm quite flattered, although I'm slightly annoyed with all the hate tweets I got from the Hamilton fans after that. But uh, no, listen, I, I enjoy it. I, I've always been someone who's very analytical in my life. I enjoy the technical side of the sport. I enjoy spending time with the engineers in the sport. You know, we, we're so lucky, Tom, to live and work in a business where we have some of the most brilliant minds on the planet who troubleshoot things you know they they do an fp1 and the car's terrible they have 24 hours to troubleshoot and make the car better before qualifying and put the car out there in a high pressure situation with i you know 80 something eye, million eyeballs around the planet and they're just fascinating people to talk to and they invariably do make it better don't they
1: karun it's been wonderful thank you very much for your time thank you very much Formula One does indeed have many brilliant minds working in it, and Karun's ability to explain the black art of race driving and race engineering only adds to our enjoyment of the sport. Casey, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up, and I look forward to seeing you at a racetrack again soon. As ever, please send in your thoughts and stories about Karun, and I'll read out a few of them at the end of next week's show. Please send them to me at tomclarksonf one on Twitter or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which leads us nicely onto what you sent in after last week's show with Mercedes technical boss Mike Elliott. Many of you enjoyed hearing from him in what was a very candid chat about the problems the team has encountered this year. Let's start with this from Monette. This was a brilliant listen. Mike's passion for technology was very evident in his answers. His mood lightened every time he explained something technical. And I love that he wants to give back to the community. If he ever does switch to teaching, his students will be very lucky. They will indeed, Monette. Thanks for getting in touch. And I agree with everything you say about Mike. He's passionate, he's knowledgeable, and he would no doubt make a brilliant teacher. Next, let's hear from Madeline. I loved this episode so much that I've listened to it twice. Mike is such an interesting chap. I may not be in F1, but his approach to management has inspired me to be better. It's interesting, Madeline, that you picked up on Mike's management style. I was fascinated by the way he invites a little bit of tension into the room during meetings because he thinks that brings out the best in people. There's so much to learn from him. And finally, let's have this from Ibris of Amber. This was awesome. We always hear from the drivers and team principals, but their technical knowledge regarding the cars is naturally so much more limited than that of the engineers. I was fascinated listening to Mike, and I would love to listen to more episodes like this. Well, Ibris, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed listening to Mike, and there will be more technical directors on the show in the future. The team and I love reading your messages and I'm sorry I don't have time to read them all out now. We also love your ratings and reviews if you've got time to leave us one. And while you're on your podcast app, check out the Beyond the Grid back catalogue. And don't miss this week's episode of F1 Nation. We go inside Max Verstappen's World Championship celebrations with his manager and his engineers. Search for F1 Nation on your podcast app. As ever, thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.